Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, Saginaw-based lobbyist Jimmy Green says if you're a Republican looking at the 2024 elections, you want the current state party to stay away as far as possible. Executive Director Maureen O'Taylor II of the Fund My Future Coalition highlights a survey finding that when first asked, 60% of respondents backed increasing the state's corporate income tax rate for extra public infrastructure funding. And State Rep. Donnie Steele, an Orion Township Republican, describes legislation she introduced to make budget bills viewable to lawmakers at least one week in advance. Now, here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, and house reporter Danielle James. Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Our roundtable discussion visitor today, sharing his individual takes on what's going on in Michigan's political ecosystem, is Jimmy Green. He was the former president of the Associated Builders and Contractors of Michigan, and the present day is the present day chief executive officer of Jimmy Green and Associates, which is the holding company for the Center for Minority Minority Entrepreneurial Enterprise, as well as the holding company for Total Solutions Group specializing in lobbying and political policy. Now, because we are now done with the Thanksgiving holiday, going into the Christmas winter holiday season, I want to ask both you, Jimmy, and Kyle a question. As people that work in the political ecosystem in one capacity or another, what is your least favorite political question to get asked at the family dinner table? (laughs) I'll let Kyle go first. (laughs) I think it's when they ask me if I'm a Republican or a Democrat or where where I stand on uh, on this issue. Um, Because I usually, when when I go to family gatherings, I like to hear what they have to say. And uh, over on the Malin side, I have to be careful because I've got some, some real strong Trump supporters there. And I've got other family members who are not Trump supporters in any way. And I got to make sure that the conversations that I have with each of them are separate and out of earshot of the other. (laughs) Maybe that's because I feel I definitely am a journalist who holds my objectivity to a very high standard. And maybe that's a compliment for people like us, Kyle, that our family members like to play a guessing game of, are they actually a Republican or a Democrat? And it's almost kind of like a betting horse race (laughs) of people trying to figure out who I am. I'm just a little journalist. Oh, that's funny. You should say that. My, my question, uh, the one I hate is it's kind of like Kyle's except mine, mine is uh, referenced. Why are you still a Republican? (laughs) That's the one I get all the time. And it's interesting because you know, when you look at my views, and and I'm I consider myself the old school traditional Republican. Uh, they they wonder why I'm a Republican because uh, my views are so skewered now versus this new Republican mantra, which is more the MAGA side of that, uh, which I've been in opposition of, not necessarily policy, but attitude. You know, the attitudes, uh, the behaviors, uh, the leaders, uh, those folks, and so. People would ask me that, but then you know, at the at the end of the day, I, I I wonder, you know, do you take flight and run or do you stay and fight? I probably balance that every day. 
So we're going to dive in because this morning the Michigan political news cycle kicked off an announcement with State Board of Education Director Pamela Pugh, who is originally running as a Democrat in the U.S. Senate race. She has now decided to leave the U.S. Senate race and is now running for the 8th Congressional District, uh, which is over including Genesee County. It also includes where you're from, Jimmy Saginaw. Uh, Could you kind of give us a on the crown? on the ground perspective of what's going on in the 8th Congressional District right now? Let me start with Pam first, because quite frankly, that was a very smart and strategic move on her part. No question about it. For her, you know, when she balanced, you consider her work product in Genesee County, mind you, uh, you know, people can make a decision whether that was good or bad, but she has certainly had a long presence in Genesee County. Uh, This is her home. Uh, this is an opportunity for her. Now, I'm not her political strategist, mind you, but if I were, I mean, there's a historical opportunity here in, in the eighth, you know, to nominate and elect somebody who is black and who might be a woman uh, who comes from, uh, you know, this this new districting that really I don't think anybody knows. I, I think we're more purple than than blue or red. Uh, you know, I think redistricting changed things. But more importantly, the last election cycle with the abortion issue on the ballot skewed that as well, too. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. She's formidable. I think right now, based on some of the names that have entered the race, she would be uh, definitely at the top of the list in terms of qualified, credible and formidable candidates. I know I've heard rumors of several other people, Matt Fallon. Uh, who is who has put out an exploratory. The other names are just out there. I think it was for Pam watching the Genesee County powerhouse uh, vacate the opportunity to run when I'm talking about Anakit and Cherry in particular and Swanson. Boy, it, and that opened up a real, uh, real uh, good door for her. Not to mention if she throws her support, let's just say, I'm hypothetically speaking here, if she were to leave the race for the Senate and throw her support behind Slotkin, it's an opportunity for her to pick up all the endorsements from labor, for example, the progressives, people who are normally her folks anyway, That that's an opportunity for her to win those folks back. So it's going to be one heck of a race here. And who, you know, the Republican candidate, uh, you know, you hear the names Bill G, Paul Young, uh, Martin Blank, um, uh, you know, are they formidable against somebody like uh, Pam Pugh? I don't know. I'm not so sure yet. As I was taking a look at this race, it looks like, though, that the doors are opening for a Senator Krista McDonald rivet candidacy. And if she were to get in, it seems like she would have a lot of support uh, and possibly from D.C. as well, being able to raise money. She was successful in a uh, in an open competitive seat for the state Senate, I would think that she would have an advantage over Pamela Pugh. Yes or no, Jimmy? Um, God, I, I got to tell you, you know, I think the Democrats are in a little bit of a quandary when it comes to that. I mean, we we've talked about that even on the vice presidential side with, you know, Governor Whitmer and, and Kamala Harris. You know, there's that black white dynamic in the Democratic Party that nobody likes to toe into. I mean, I do. But I think it's it's one of those unspoken things. Do you run somebody like her versus a historical candidate possibility like a Pam Pew? I mean, on paper, you're right, Kyle. Certainly she would be formidable, but we all know things on paper don't necessarily translate out to real good political fodder. Uh, and those two running against each other. I, I, I And here's the other side of that, too. I don't think that race is won in Midland. I think that race is won in parts of Bay City. 
certainly a part of, of a large part of Saginaw and a huge part of northern Genesee County. Uh, if I had my odds, I, I'd put that more on Pam than Kristen. Uh, and there's also a campaign running right now. I've, it's kind of funny to see it where, you know, they're telling Kristen to stay. You know, there's this campaign I'll say, stay, you know, you haven't served your constituents for even over a year yet. And, not, you know, now you look like you're uh, hopping on another political bandwagon. I think that plays negatively toward her. That's not out there as much yet because she hasn't formally announced. But don't don't uh, discount that wave. Uh, moving, telling her to stay where they need her in the Senate in particular, just like in the House where they need Democrats as well, too. Uh, I think Democrats are very careful about that very slim majority they have and chasing political uh, offices might not bode well for a state, maybe federal, but not on a state basis. Jimmy, can you tell me where Pamela Pugh's power base would be? Oh, definitely Saginaw. No question about it. Uh, I, I don't think there's any question. You know, it's, it's funny to me that, you know, Sheldon Neely has thrown his name into that. And and I at this point, Karen Weaver uh, has uh, demonstrated she's probably going to get in. So you vacate that black power base in Flint that that they almost negate each other out. They have a huge hostility toward one another. Uh, that opens up a door again for a black constituency in Flint. Uh, if they get out and vote and we've seen that power of the black woman vote, we've seen that play out time and time again, not just here, but all over the country. And and Pam's got some very powerful friends, like Stacey Abrams, for example. I think they come in here and uh, with her out of the Senate race, how does Hill Harper help her? You know, I think by dropping out of that Senate race, she picks up a huge black support base uh, that may not necessarily be part of the district but would be really interested in having her win that congressional race uh, in the 8th District. I think the U.S. Senate race keeps on getting interesting, too, especially with the Hill-Harper versus Alyssa Slocken dynamic on the Democratic primary side. Hill-Harper sharing that he was offered a pretty big campaign contribution to run against Rashida Tlaib in a Congress, a House, a U.S. House bid instead uh, because of the rhetoric dealing with the Israel versus Hamas war. What are kind of your thoughts on what do you think are the big things to watch right now when it comes to the U.S. Senate race? Uh, I mean, you know, they, Alyssa Slotkin is truly the front and not necessarily because she was anointed, but I mean, she's highly qualified. I think sometimes that gets lost in all this noise. It sounds like she's some throw in candidate. I mean, if you put put aside all the other stuff, she's one hell of a candidate uh, for the U.S. Senate. She's done her time. I think, you know, Hill Harper getting into the race. I I, I think that plays well from a campaign uh, ad standpoint. But I don't see I don't see him as a huge threat to Alyssa, Alyssa Slotkin, despite how this other thing played out. It's good to make that kind of noise. But I don't think that translates across the state into any kind of votes, any additional votes. It might buoy the Detroit votes, you know, a lot, you know, they want our guy out. But I don't think that has any kind of uh, power uh, to pick up votes beyond Detroit. Did Hill Harper make a mistake, Jimmy, by going public with this offer, A? And did he also make a mistake, B, in declining this $20 million that was going to come his way for a campaign to challenge Rashida Tlaib? I think you missed. I think that's B and C. I think the first mistake was A, which was he made a mistake getting into the senatorial race. So that would be my order right there. Okay. A, All right. So, and I mean that. And that's not a, that's not out of disrespect. Uh, but but again, you know, Johnny come lately and his candidacy for the U.S. senatorial race in the Democratic primary, I thought was uh, well, uh, not well advised at all. 
I think he could have made a huge dent looking at a congressional seat. But, you know, from a senatorial standpoint, I mean, it would be a he never should have gotten into the race to begin with. And then what about BNC? Did he make a mistake going public with it? And did he make a mistake in not at least, uh, well, not doing it and running against Rashida Tlaib? Absolutely. I, I think he made a mistake by going public with it because I don't know what you gain from there other than saying what you can't be bought. I, I don't know what that I don't know what that was all about, quite frankly. I, I think there's probably some clarity that needs to come out of the campaign for it. And did he make a mistake not running against Tlaib? I mean, look at Tlaib district. Really? <laughs> I mean, that doesn't go. She is whether we like it or not. You know, I'm pro Israel as well. But let's face it, her constituency base, they support her. And I think running against her based on her support for Palestinians I don't think that's a great campaign in her district. So I, I think he I think he made a mistake going public. And again, if it was to translate into C running against her, that would be one thing. But then to say I'm not going to run against her, I just think that's strike one, two, and three. So that, you know, that that first part of my he he never should have entered. I think he's just struck out completely. Now, I know we're going to dive a little deeper into this topic, but what do you think are the top things to watch right now when it comes to Republicans in Michigan? <laughs> the funny parts or the serious parts? And it's hard to tell the difference between the two. I mean, it is a mess and everybody knows it. Uh, you know, and it's so interesting to me because I, I, I'll i be frank with you, you know, my support for Republican candidates really stems along the line. And, and they may say, hell, they don't want my support. They consider me to be a rhino. And I'm, I'm OK with that. And in this environment, it's almost a proud label to have that you might be independent of, of the far fill in, fill in the blank. Uh, but for me, I think the Republican Party and I've and I've listened and I've talked to these guys all the time, these these women and, and men elected officials, they are running independent campaigns. The last thing they want is the state party coming in and being a support base. Uh, what they're doing now, trying to change some of the state bylaws and, and removing chair people. All they've done is create more of a mess. And I don't know how you can create more of a mess in that mess. Like it, it's almost like they said, you know, we 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 are absolutely incompetent. How can we be more incompetent? And and that seems to be the committee that they need to, that they need to disband. Uh, it's it's a joke. And what what Karamo's doing right now is just trying to basically buoy her limited support to maintain her chairmanship. And at this point, I, I think that's over. It's so bizarre, though, to look at this, because you would think that the people on the state committee, which oversees the, uh, I guess, the administration of the Michigan Republican Party, would try and, and look at deposing her. And, and while that's still very possible, the people on the state committee who are opposed to her are actually resigning because they don't want anything to do with the party in case there's some lawsuit later. I was just reading an email this morning from a woman who was on the budget committee who decided that she had to resign altogether because the the idea from the Karamo folks is that they're going to try and sell the Michigan Republican Party headquarters, which yeah. they can't do because right. it's owned in trust. And she doesn't want to be involved in the lawsuit. She doesn't want to have to hire an attorney or whatever. So she says, forget it. I'm, I'm just getting out of this. And so what ends up happening is Karamo brings in her own supporters to replace her dissenters who want nothing to do with her. That goes back to my initial point when we were talking about why are you still a Republican? You know, that question, uh, do you stay and fight or, or just flee? And, and I think you're starting to see that. And I think that's going to bode 
terrible for candidates in close races where you need all the support you can gather uh, from these ground these ground folks who are now giving up on I don't think just the uh, just the party itself. Uh, but I know the state party and anybody the state party backs is probably not going to get that groundswell of support from those districts. Uh, it, this is just a complete and total mess. And you're right. She's surrounding herself uh, with people who support her. And that support is limited and ultimately will cost races or very close races elections. Uh, this, If you're a Republican right now, Looking at 24, you want this party to stay as far away from you as possible. You want to run on convictions. You want to run on principle. You want to run on policy. You want to stay away from state party rhetoric as much as possible. It's going to be hard in some respects. You got you got Trump, obviously, who might very well be on the ticket. I mean, imagine what you're facing as a Republican running in close seats, in close districts. Uh, and, and the party's doing nothing to help them at all. I, I wish more and more people, quite frankly, uh, would step up in the party. And I'm talking about elected officials who would step up in the party and say, enough already. You're costing us elections. You're never going to change that 54-54 or what used to be 56-54 under these current conditions. They have a self-interest in doing that. Those are the kind of Republicans that other Republicans who are voters are looking for, people who can stand up and say, did you forget how to win, that we want to win, that we don't want to be embarrassed. And that that word, mind you, Kyle and Samantha, that word I hear a lot, embarrassed, especially from business owners. They're embarrassed by the party. Now, I know that that's a generalization, but it's hard to separate that sometimes. When you say Republican, you think party, and some people take it over to Trump. And that word embarrassment always seems to circle or, or this hovering dark cloud over Republicans. Look at what they're doing right now here. The Michigan Republican Party's Jim Copas is putting together a new constitution for the party that they hope to ratify at their August 2024 convention. So this is this seems to be the focus right now for Karamo outside of figuring out what to do with their line of credit that they haven't been able to pay off. But creating a whole new set of rules um, that seems to be the problem, she says. The reason they're not effective as a, at a party level, Jimmy, is because the bylaws aren't good. So they have to create a whole new constitution and, and that will solve the problem. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Because that's what people do. That's what they do before they vote. They read the bylaws of the state party. Sure. Like that's really going to work. It does not. And you know, what's funny. You know, there's this email trail going around right now. And so when she puts out this long dissertation, a long dissertation, one of the one of the most competent people who still belong to the state party, his first line says, were you drunk when you wrote this? I mean, if that if that doesn't tell you something right, were you drunk when you wrote this? to Christina Cromo. And that gives you some, and he was at least kind enough to respond. You can only imagine how many people, and there's this long thread of emails going back and forth, none, quite frankly, that are supportive of this idea. They recognize that it's not the constitutional bylaws that's changing or costing Republicans elections, it's Republicans. And you can change whatever you want to in those bylaws, but if you still got the same mouthpieces out there, you're gonna lose. 
could 2024, and I'm going to utilize this term the way that you used it, be the year of the quote unquote rhino? Because you think about it, you have Peter Meyer and Mike Rogers, who appear to be the most promising when it comes to fundraising and the Republican side of the U.S. Senate race. You have Rick Snyder hanging out with some of the most competitive and Republican state House candidates. Uh, what are your thoughts on the potential of someone who has not fully submitted to this new Republican chapter, really breaking the breaking the seal on things? I think it's funny, though, that Rick Snyder, who was the bane of everybody's existence, you know, at one point, you know, and then he got called a massive rhino. And then it was, hey, could you help us raise money? You know, so boy, money is all forgiving, isn't it? But in this particular case, no, I, I you know, there are a lot of people, especially business people, uh, a lot of those 10 to 15 percent who are waiting for a, res a restoration of basic conservatism and not table tabletop topics like transgenderism and and critical race theory and things of that nature that really aren't affecting these business owners. Uh, they are competently waiting, confidently waiting that the 24 election might be the last blowout. And that's sad. Isn't that a sad commentary that you have so many people saying, well, you know, maybe after 24 and they're already, they're already accepting loss that, and I'm telling you, I'm not the only person out here saying that I might be the only person on mirror saying it, but there are a lot of people who are afraid that the 24 election might widen that gap for Democrats and Republicans. And, and that's a sad commentary. I tell you what, watch the money though, and wa watch where it comes from. And it's not gonna come from people uh, who need Republicans to win, but who will sit back because they can live with a few higher gas costs. They can live with a little food costs. They'll still go up North. Their lives are going to be unchanged by a democratic majority for the most part. And then they'll wait for the return to lunacy. I do like to ask this question. It's, do you think we're just in a phase right now? Or do you think that we're in an inve inevitable new reality? Oh, I think we saw this before, though. I mean, don't forget, you know, I mean, God, who wouldn't, as a Republican, who wouldn't welcome back the Tea Party, who actually were, you know, they were a collective principled group. Now, they were loud, no question about it, but that was something that people hadn't seen before. But if you go back, and I go back to the, to the Tea Party, they were principled. Uh, they were right in their issues. We called them the Tea Party. We forgot what they stood for, taxed enough already. Uh, they they gutted out Republicans who cost them elections. And I think that's going to happen. I don't know what they'll call themselves this time, but I do think you're going to see one hell of a movement. I think this is a phase. I don't think this is all things inevitable. Uh, I think this is a phase uh, for a lot, of, a lot of different reasons. But I think at one point, Republicans who still are Republicans will come back and they will gut these folks out and get back into principal conservatism, which right now, by the, by the way, is a different thing than republicanism. And I think most conservatives will tell you that. Who gives the Republicans the best chance of winning the White House next year? Well, if I had my druthers, you know, I'd flip a ticket somewhere. I, you know, Nikki Haley, to me, is clearly uh, the best candidate out there for Republicans. Now, that being said, uh, the best candidate for Republicans never seems to get the nomination. So, you know, if you had a DeSantis, Nikki Haley ticket, you'd have a pretty damn good attractive uh, ticket, uh, more so than you would any of the other candidates. And you could flip it around. I don't know if DeSantis would ever allow his ego to be on the under ticket. But I mean, Nikki Haley, no question about it. She is formidable. People like her. Uh, she, she Her conservatism is great. Her issue 
Her messaging on the abortion issue is as sound, as solid as any Republican has ever publicly said. And that resonates with conservative women. And it resonates, quite frankly, with blue dog Democratic women as well, too. You know, I, I feel fortunate enough to live in a, in a community where I get to hear all these different voices. And that Nikki Haley scares the hell out of Democrats. And I think she kind of scares some Republicans, too. <laughs> so what's her path to victory? Does it have to be Donald Trump is convicted of something or drops out of the race before she can emerge? Yeah. I mean, I, it's sad to say I, I can't see any other way. And I don't see him dropping out of the race. So it would have to be him getting convicted of something and there being some public backlash to that. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. I want to ask kind of a more Michigan-focused question, too. As someone who works around Lansing and has seen, you know, so many things get pushed over the finish line this year, what do you think is going to be the most helpful for Democrats in 2024? What would be kind of their legislative success story from this year? And what could have the most negative impact? I think the I think the social implications of Democrats, you know, I, I've said this uh, a lot. I think Democrats have made Michigan a much better place to live in. Now, you know, people stop right there and they go, oh, my God, you know, heresy. But they've made it a much better place to live in. I don't think they've made it a much better place to work in. And I think, you know, how Republicans tie that into a campaign is going to be difficult. Why? Because most people haven't haven't had the effects of some of the some of the, the the pieces that they put into place. You know, we didn't have immediate effect. Most people haven't felt it. Most people don't pay attention to it. It's not until it actually starts to impact them. I don't see anything they've done from a business standpoint actually hitting these folks by the time November rolls around. So it's going to be basically messaging and it's going to be we're doing great things for the state of Michigan versus the crazies. And and, and how they populate that from a democratic standpoint is probably going to be easy because, again, most people just haven't felt it. And the people who've heard it are people you can already count on the Republican side. It's the independents. What, what, how, have they really been impacted by democratic legislation? No, haven't felt it. So I, I think, you know, from this standpoint, what they've done is their plus. They've done a lot. And how they message it is going to be the key. I don't see a handicap with Democratic messaging at all, which is all the more reason why Republicans have to have to come back and be grownups at the table like they used to. And talking about failed and past elections, not going to do it. Talking about transgenderism, not going to do it. Critical rate, all these social issues is not going to do it. It just Democrats are just going to make them sound crazy. And you damn sure better not bring up that abortion issue. If, Demo- if I'm a Democrat, I'm just running steady as she goes. I don't think they need to do anything extraordinary. They just need to talk about how they've made Michigan a much better place to live in, more rights, you know, those kinds of things. So the Reproductive Health Act, do you think that's not going to have as much of a negative impact? It just kind of is. Mm-hmm. They said what they were going to do. It is what it is. It, it amazes me that that Republicans act really outraged because Democrats act like Democrats. <laughs> like. I never, I never quite understood why that was such an outrage. Like they tell, they tell you who they are, they tell you what they're going to do, and then they do it. Like where's the outrage? That's the old adage: elections have consequences, and the consequences are Democrats just act like Democrats. Jimmy Green, the chief executive officer of Jimmy Green and Associates, thank you so much for joining us this morning and hanging out on the Merce Monday podcast. Always fun. Take care. I appreciate what you guys do. More than you know. Me 
final segment of the MERS Monday podcast is Moreno Taylor II, the executive director of the Fund My Future Coalition, a joint effort featuring groups like the Michigan League for Public Policy, Progress Michigan, and Clean Water Action. Fund My Future commissioned an epic MRA poll, which was conducted from November 10th through the 16th, where 60% of respondents backed the idea of increasing Michigan's corporate income tax rate to create extra state funding for public infrastructure projects like those dealing with roads, bridges, and water and sewer and water and sewer systems. Among those approving the idea, 39% strongly supported it. 88% of Democratic respondents supported the idea. 55% of respondents identifying as independent and 33% of Republican participants reportedly supported the idea. Marino, can you tell us a little bit about your coalition and also what were your biggest takeaways from this survey? Uh, our coalition has been around for a little while, I would say that, um, for almost the better part of a decade. You know, I think we all started putting our heads together at some point. Um, you have a lot of groups out here advocating for education. You have a lot of folks advocating for environmental issues. You know, we have social issues. There's just so many different things that we as residents um, are passionate about. And unfortunately, you know, we all know that the pot is just not big enough. And so when we take a step back and really think about what we can do to have the biggest impact on people's lives, it's really directing more of those public dollars back into the communities and services that people really want. And so, you know, we just kind of thought at some point we should get a baseline for what public support for increasing corporate income taxes looks like. And honestly, I'm, I was a little shocked. Um, <laughs> it, these are, this is further proof though, that I think, you know, we've said for quite a while that Michigan residents are maybe a little smarter than our elected officials give them credit for. And so when we have people who are afraid to have tough conversations, you know, sometimes you have to show them that there's something there. And I think this is just kind of one of those instances we wanted to see if there was there there. And uh, unsurprisingly, I think, you know, this is further proof that, you know, the people of Michigan want their elected officials to, you know, take some bold initiative and really address these structural revenue issues that we have. How big was your sample size? They sampled 600 individuals. And when you think about this idea of increasing the state's corporate income tax, how much of an increase are you thinking of? You know, that's a conversation that we really need to have. You know, we're not making these decisions in a vacuum. It's really not our place to, you know, dictate what policy should be. But, you know, we need to be all together having a substantive conversation about how we address these long-term structural issues. And I think there was a perfect example recently in an article in Bridge where, you know, they looked at the differences between what Indiana has been doing with economic development and what Michigan has been doing, finding, of course, that Indiana's population is growing. They're paying more attention to communities and individuals, not just corporations. And it seems to be working out for them. And so, you know, we really just want to ask the tough questions and really hopefully get our elected officials on a path towards addressing these issues. If you ask me, I'm sure I could give you a number, but honestly want to make sure that we have the most input from folks, you know, across the state and decision makers, elected officials, et cetera, and make a decision that's going to be in the best interest of everyone in our state. So the corporate income tax in Michigan is 6%. Have you taken a look at how much money would be raised if you were to increase it by a certain dollar amount? 
you know, Kyle, we haven't even got that far, honestly. You know, this is just kind of, like I said, we wanted to just see what the baseline support level was for these taxes. And as I've been always been told in electoral politics, all you really need is 50 plus one to make something happen, right? And so I think when we see results like this, and then of course, when for the folks who were not necessarily supportive of a tax increase initially, they were read some messaging, and then that support level shifted another 10%. So after some education on the history of Michigan's corporate taxes, you have 70% of people who were polled, of course, let me say that, in the state of Michigan who think that, hey, you know, maybe it's time we take a look at this because, you know, the people of Michigan have put up with a lot and uh, we've had our great days, we've had our slow days. Um, it's time that we really start to focus in on our communities and our people. You know, if trickle-down economics worked, Kyle, it would have trickled down by now. And I think you have a lot of people out here who are starting to see that reality and say, okay, I put my faith in this. I've waited long enough. It's not making my community a better place. What do we do? I'm kind of struck as I'm looking at the contributors to fund my future, a very broad coalition here, SCIU of Michigan, Mothering Justice, Clean Water Action, um, Sierra Club, Progress Michigan, while they're all groups that would traditionally support Democrats, they do come from a lot of different areas, don't they? Exactly. You know, we uh, while it would be easy to look at this issue from a partisan perspective, um, what thing that we have found, and I think the polling shows, is that this is a nonpartisan issue. People all across the state of Michigan, you know, want to see more investment in their communities. We would like to see a stronger education system. And more importantly, you know, I think we have to not overlook the disconnect that's, you know, you have a wonderful group of folks in Lansing and they're doing some amazing things, but we have to make sure that they understand that there's a lot of folks out here who are really struggling. And so we need to make sure that that social safety net is in place, whether it be making sure our unemployment system is fixed, whether, you know, it, there's so many things that I think everyday Michiganders deal with that a lot of us um are unfortunately unaware of. And so it's up to us, I think, to provide that voice and make sure that our uh, decision makers understand that this is just the beginning, especially after maybe 40 years of one side control in Lansing. You know, Democrats probably uh, had a lot on their plate, I'll just say, but there should have been no shortage of policy that they could have visited and looked at you know, doing something about. So, well, to that point, Marino, I want to ask you, do you think the legislature did enough in its first year? Do I personally think they did enough? Yeah. No. What more would you have liked to have seen? I mean, I could probably put together a laundry list here, but. <laughs> All right. Well, just give me the first couple <laughs> things that come to your head. What didn't they do this year that you really would have liked to seen them do? At the forefront of my mind right now, as a black man in the state of Michigan, I don't think that we saw any structural change to law enforcement, even coming out of the situation in Grand Rapids with Patrick Leola. Preemption is always going to be at the forefront of our minds. I mean, I don't think the emergency manager laws are still on the books, Kyle. Come on. Like I said, there's a lot of things that probably didn't require a ton of heavy lifting that they could have done that would have gone a long way to show gestures of goodwill to communities who are currently not feeling included. 
I want to pivot back to using a corporate income tax increase to fund public infrastructure. Now, I'm a numbers girl, so I'm going to do a little bit of a number drop. Fair warning to all of our listeners here. But I've been doing a lot of coverage on the Federal Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Uh, You see that in fiscal year 2024, $2.2 billion was set aside for the state of Michigan. Fiscal year 2025, $2.24 billion set aside for Michigan. And then in that final fiscal year of the the IIJA, fiscal year 2026, $2.27 billion. And, And that makes me raise the question, if I were to put my cynical hat on about your proposal, I would ask the question, Why do we need to increase the corporate income tax if we're getting quite literally billions of dollars from the federal government for infrastructure? And that's a terrific question, I would say, you know, and these are one time dollars that are coming down from D.C. to fill gaps. And I would push back on that only by saying, you know, earlier this year, there was a report put out that stated we needed an additional four and a half billion dollars annually just to equitably fund education in the state of Michigan. That did not include any funding for facility improvements, which we have to be aware that a lot of our school infrastructure across the state, especially as you get further out from, you know, urban areas, is dated and needs to be updated. I mean, I think just this past summer, you had a lot of schools that had to call off when it was too hot because the schools don't have air conditioning. And so $2.2 billion, let me not say it, that's not just a drop in the bucket. But when you have just an education alone in the state of Michigan, a $4.5 billion need, and then you add on top of that, let's say, water infrastructure. There was a report earlier, I want to say in March of this year, that stated we needed an additional $1.5 billion just to upgrade our water infrastructure. And so, Sam, I think you can see where I'm going with this. The numbers add up very quickly. And I can tell you that I would comfortably say we need at least $10 billion annually in additional revenue to bring this state into a situation where we're actually addressing all of the needs that we are aware of. Now, mind you, there's stuff out there we still don't even know about at this point. (laughs) But look at the popularity of policies like polluter pay. I think... This is polled consistently at over 90%. Michiganders currently contribute almost a billion dollars to cleaning up these toxic abandoned sites that corporations left behind when they either went bankrupt or whatever. A billion dollars a year, Sam. If we were able to just get that off our books, there's a billion dollars right there that we can put back into our services and our communities. And I also do want to mention that The Republican-led legislature at the time in 2022 approved a $4 billion water and quality of life supplemental. But but I think I really do just want to ask this question of, do you think the issue is, is that money is currently being spent unwisely? Maybe there is a lack of people in the workforce to contribute to these projects. Maybe there's some poor planners that while they're designing projects, they're not being designed to last that long. You know, I uh, I can say for sure that in my time working over at the counties, I we spent a lot of time discussing, you know, roads, of course. And uh, at that time, I think we needed seven billion dollars a year to bring Michigan's roads from bad to good. 
And so your example is somewhat spot on. Yes, if we only have X amount of dollars, then maybe we don't get to build that 20-year road. We're building a five-year road, which means that in five years, we're back rebuilding it. So the dollars don't go as far. We do know, you know, I think a lot of folks are now more aware of inflation. And so when we say, hey, you know, we're making record investments here or making record investments in this, we have to acknowledge the fact that those dollars don't go as far as they used to. And so while these one-time federal dollars or one-time supplemental appropriation dollars are great, what we are trying to make sure folks understand is this is a structural revenue issue. And that when we need four and a half billion dollars annually just to make sure that our schools are equitable, this cuts across all socioeconomic backgrounds. I mean, if our Michigan businesses are going to be successful, they need good workers. And so we need to make sure that we are providing an educated workforce. You know, this is just common sense the way that we look at it. You know, we have to make these investments now to bring Michigan into the situation where, you know, I think many of us know it can be. You know, Michigan's a beautiful state. We got a lot going for us. But, you know, this is kind of one of those situations where you got to put your money where your mouth is. And I think now that I'm on the nonprofit side of things, you know, you learn a lot dealing with the foundations and the folks who are writing the checks to these groups like myself who are, you know, doing this work. And I'm sure they will tell you that, you know, the number of folks with their hands out has unfortunately continued to grow because the nonprofit space is picking up the slack from the funding cuts that Lansing has been providing to local communities. And Reno, so I was just taking a look here at uh, how much the corporate business tax brings in here at Michigan. It looks like according to the House Fiscal Agency, it's $2.2 billion. So even if you were to double the corporate income tax, you still wouldn't even get half of what of this 10 billion that you're talking about. So where else do you think we can get 10 billion other than the corporate income tax? You know, that's a great conversation to have. And uh, I think I will say that's 2.2 billion before any credits though. So assuming that we're not actually giving out all of that money, then yes, we do receive about that. But, you know, as I just mentioned, you know, you have the polluter pay, that's a billion dollars right there. You know, I'm sure there's several different policy ideas floating around. You know, we're working on several things, including dark stores reform. This is a huge issue for local governments all across the state of Michigan. If uh, And I'm sure you you should be aware of it, if not. But, you know, you have a lot of these big box stores coming back after the fact, asking for tax adjustments to the or adjustments to their tax assessment. And uh, in many instances, those dollars come right out of local communities, forcing them to close their libraries, re community recreation centers. This is potentially, I think we studied a two-year period from 2013 to 2015, and the dollar impact for local communities was over $2 billion. I think it was $2.4 billion. And so there's a lot of different things we have to look at, Kyle. I'm, I'm definitely not saying that we need to get $10 billion from a corporate income tax increase. But what I'm saying is that's a part of the solution, and we need to get some folks in a room who understand the seriousness and are ready to meet the moment and have serious conversations about how do we uh, make this happen. Yeah. Should we look at a flat income tax or a progressive income tax? We've got a flat income tax here in Michigan now. Should we look toward a progressive income tax so that those who make a little more pay a little more? You know, Kyle, I think that's a great idea. You know, this is one of those things and uh, it has been polled over time. And I think 
there's a lot of popularity there. And uh, if you get the right sort of makeup, then, you know, I think that uh, that's a terrific way to possibly bring in a little more revenue as well. It's been looked at in the past. I know that uh, folks like Senator Jeff Irwin have introduced resolutions supporting graduated income tax in the past. Of course, uh, it's different kind of, uh, that's a different process, of course, with having to go and amend the Constitution. Corporate income tax, as you probably know, is something that we've changed three or four times over the past 20 years. This this year really marked my first time ever covering a UAW strike. And one thing that was interesting when I looked at points of those that had covered strikes before me was the conversation about how the message was different, even from the side that would typically traditionally be opposed to the strikers that would dare say something along the lines of, look at these rabble rousers chasing business out of town. They're their strategy really changed. And you saw the messaging all kind of zoom in on this being a crusade against corporate greed and that Elon Musk at Tesla could be the biggest loser because now they could unionize. I see, and you're wearing the labor shirt, a UAW shirt. I, I guess I wonder, you know, after we've seen this change in messaging around the UAW strike, do you think that there's a bigger appetite now for increasing corporate income taxes? Absolutely. You know, I cannot help but notice the disconnect between the conversations in Lansing and the conversations that are happening, you know, out in the real world. And sadly, it's very easy to see that a lot of people just simply don't understand the struggle that people are going through out here. And I think you saw Sean Fain really tap into that anger and frustration just a little bit. I mean, I know we're not all scholars and econ economists out here, but, you know, Every quarter, Ford, GM, Stellantis, they all announce how much they make. It's not a secret. And so when you say, hey, you know, we only made $10, $20 billion this last quarter, but we can't afford living wages. You know, my mom works at uh, Warren, you know, so I'm very privy to a lot of these, you know, unfortunate issues. And instead of hiring an additional, you know, more workers so that your staff are not working six days, 12 hour, 14 hour shifts. This is a perfect example, I, and I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, I I do think there is a ton of anger and frustration from the working people who, I've, again, were expecting to see a lot more progress on things. And so when you have someone like Sean Fain who's able to put that on display for folks, you know, it's pretty hard to ignore. And then you have the cherry on top, which is for the first time in U.S. history, you know, President Biden joined them on the picket line. And he's been one of the biggest proponents of, you know, increasing taxes on corporations, um, making sure that there's a minimum corporate income tax rate. And so I think that, you know, he's leading from the top down and you see a lot of people here, you know, who understand that if we don't get something done for the American people, the average Joes out here, that they're going to have, I think, a very tough uh, 2024. Now, we're near the end of our interview segment, but I really want to talk about corporate incentives because you've also seen a lot of prominent Democratic leaders in Michigan be a part of awarding these big corporate incentive packages, the SOAR fund. What are your thoughts on that? I'll just say I was not one of the biggest fans of that announcement, especially because it was one of the first things that was done, you know, when the Democratic trifecta took over. Um, and I know I'm not the only one who, you know, sort of felt a little taken aback by that, you know. And so 
at least seeing things sort of slow down and watching the conversations that are progressing about how do we make economic development more impactful at the local level? How do we make sure that our local communities are not being left behind? Um, we're all here for that conversation. You know, that's the most important thing for us is trying to make sure that we're putting these public tax dollars back into our communities. Because again, without all of the NDA, you know, we don't have access to all of the information, I can tell you that. And, you know, I think you guys have been doing quite a bit of uh, coverage on the non-disclosures that lawmakers have to uh, sign in order just to be a part of this process. But when you're taking our public tax dollars and then shipping them off into a secretive system that we have no oversight over, and then not only that, we're not really seeing, I think, all of the promised benefit. And so it's easy for us as residents to look and say, hey, all right, look, we've been trying this for decades now. And not only that, we've been cutting taxes. Our local communities are doing everything that they can with decreasing dollars and people are noticing there's a reason people are leaving the state of Michigan. And it's because they're not getting the services that they look for and demand in the communities that they live in. And so, you know, whether it be public transit, <clears throat> whether it be the social services and social safety net, like, you know, mental health, whether it just be simple as parks and recreation, you know, folks want to have things to do with their downtime, right? You know, we really have to look at all of the opportunities that we have here in Michigan, and we need to buckle down and get something done, not just for corporations. You know, I think there's this mistaken belief that, you know, if we give all of our attention to the economy, everything's gonna rain down from the sky. And the economy is, it's a thing, it's fictitious. We, the people of Michigan are the economy. If the workers aren't happy, they're gonna leave. If the workers aren't happy, they're gonna strike. <laughs> So if at some point we just take a step back and start really, you know, thinking about what's important, I think we can get things back on track. You know, we just have to stop doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Moreno Taylor II, the executive director of the Fund My Future Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful afternoon. The clicker at the tube. I prefer expensive news. New car, new girl, new ice, new glass. Joining us for today's final segment of the MERS Monday podcast is State Rep. Donnie Steele, an Orion Township Republican representing her home municipality, Bloomfield Hills, and parts of Auburn Hills, Bloomfield Township, and Oakland Township. Before coming to the legislature, Rep. Steele served as an Orion Township trustee for four years and as the township's treasurer for six. She was additionally an associate broker and a realtor for a local independent real estate firm. Hi, Rep. Steele. How are you doing today? I'm good today, and it was a great weekend. I hope everybody else had a great weekend over Thanksgiving. It was a nice, um, it was a nice break. Amazing. So we invited you on to initially zoom in on legislation that you co-introduced with Representative Kuhn uh, before the legislature adjourned for the year, House Bill 5296 and House Bill 5297, dealing with how to make the state's budget-making process more transparent. Can you tell us a little bit more about this legislation and what it does? 
it's basically like three major components. And I'm going to combine the two bills because, you know, our little uh, subsection sheet just combined what the major points are. But that at the beginning of the year um, that we have to introduce the budget at the beginning of the year, that we can't wait till June to introduce the budget, that um, that we have seven days to review the budget before we vote on it. And that that when they go into conference committee, that they can't they being whoever goes to the conference committee can't add a bunch of items uh, like pork, per se. So you have the Senate's version, the executive's branch version and the House version. And they are all like, OK, we're going to spend this much on school and this much on health and human services and this much on transportation, that when they come out, the things that they can only put in the budget was what went in the conference committee. They can't come out and add $280 million worth of extra things that they added like they did in this than this budget cycle. So those are those are the big issues that basically you just have time to review it, to start it and to uh, not add to it at the 11th hour. So I wanted to ask about a provision that was added to the omnibus budget. Ultimately, for fiscal year 2024, a lawmaker would be required to come forward as the legislative sponsor of a special project that was appropriated for by January 15, 2024. And I was just a bit wondering, like, have lawmakers received any specific instructions of how to come forward with revealing themselves as a legislative sponsor of a spending request how exactly is that system playing out right now well sam that's a really good question and i wish i knew and i don't know the answer <laughs> and i'm like i think that we should be able to see who sponsored these bills and these cutouts and there were so many things i mean that that budget was 1600 pages and so if i'm me missing that portion of the boilerplate isn't surprising but i think it would be this time that we are not in session would be an excellent time to meet with the appropriations committee to go over some of these boilerplate issues like what you just said and to start going in and diving deeper to make sure that that's being done how it's being done if it's being done because i can i bet you that some of the things that are the rules and the guidelines that push that budget forward might not, if they are being done, we're not monitoring the results of those reports because we're not meeting. So I think we should meet every week for a couple hours and do a better dive into that budget because I think that not only would I be better off for it, the committee would be better off for it. We would know more about our own budget and the state would be better off out for it. So I appreciate you bringing that up. And I think that we should do that. I just don't know if we are. And if we are, I don't know about it, which I should. But I do want to add, I do want to add one more thing about the transparency bill that we did put in there is that in the boilerplate language, you can't change the laws in the boilerplate language. And that's another thing is because they're trying to make laws in the boilerplate language, and that's really not the place to do that. So that was something that was added to. Kind of looking back at your transparency, you know, budgetary bill package, could you tell us a little more about the conversations that led up to that and a little bit more about what it felt like to be in the minority during this process? 
Okay, so coming from local government, and Tom and I, Tom was a county commissioner, and so when when you do the budget process, and it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you start that budget six months early, and you have budget workshops, and you open them up to the public, and you invite people to listen because it is public money and they should be done at public meetings and you also have like different departments come in and they say okay the fire chief he comes in and he says okay i need a new rescue truck and the cost is six hundred thousand dollars and you know we have been saving money for this but we're going to be a little bit short and so we thought that we would take money from the the hvac account because we don't need a new hvac boiler right now we could buy we could wait a year and we can get this rescue truck those are the conversations that we had in budgeting i mean i was there 10 years every year that process was repeated and so when you when i saw what happened at the state level and the volume of money that went through i'm i'm still astounded i'm astounded how untransparent it is how much money is spent and how there's like no rules that anybody follows. I'm like, I think there should be a public outcry of this. And so I keep on trying to shed light on it. And these transparency laws were a part of it. But if these transparency laws don't get in, you can certainly make them rules. You know, if we become, get a majority and have the appropriations follow these rules that mimic what the transparency law looks like and open up this process to spend money more appropriately for the whole state of Michigan, for the benefit of everybody, not just cutouts, tax incentives, one-time communities, one-time fundings. Let's like look at it holistically and look at how it can benefit everybody holistically, not the winners and the losers. I, I ramble on that, so I didn't mean to do that. You know, this whole uh, appropriations process did not used to look like this. As a matter of fact, we used to have individual conference committees within departments, within specific sections. So the Agriculture Subcommittee would have its own conference committee with the House and the Senate members. And at that point, everybody would be able to take a look at what kind of the agreement was. You know, the House and the Senate and the administration come together. And that was what was in that budget. And then that budget would go to the House and then would go to the Senate and there would be actual debate on that particular budget. It wasn't done the same day. It was usually done a week later. And then we would get all these amendments. It would take a long time. And so the entire budget process would stretch out for about two or three weeks as you went through the approach process, you went through the conference committees at the individual level, and then you would vote on what ended up being 15 different budgets where you would have different fights on a bunch of amendments. So I go through all this to tell you that it was a very long process. It got a little messy sometimes. It was a lot of late days, but what had happened during COVID in particular is that the Republicans found a way where they could get Democratic support by bringing them in, getting what projects they want prearranged into the budget. So all they had to do was package it into one big omnibus bill, throw it on the board, and it would get Democratic support. And even though you only got like seven hours to see it, it was nice and tidy. You got to control the messaging and boom, it was all done and the public didn't have to worry about it. Now, as a lawmaker, isn't that better 
because you don't have these elongated, boring days where everybody's fighting over amendments and it all goes through party line. That sounds wonderful. I mean, like to actually, um, and I actually thought that the actual committees would be doing some of that. But what, what you're saying is it was more like a, a like little ad hoc committees per, like an ad hoc budgetary committee would actually take the piece at the each committee level, or it was a separate committee outside of the committee, which you were saying. Kind so of. what we had, I mean, it, it was still the same structure in that we had appropriations subcommittees, but instead of them just kind of giving them, rec giving out recommendations that they throw into this big pot that would get worked out in leadership behind closed doors and then unveiled at a conference committee that no one really knew about and really didn't really show up to, these conference committees, the House, or I'm sorry, these subcommittees, the House and the Senate would actually work together on their own budget, their own conference committee, and then they would vote on that. And then they would bring that individually to the House and the Senate. There was no omnibus. This omnibus is a fairly recent creation. This is not the way that it used to be. So what I'm saying is that there was this in the past. And what had happened in the past is it became a drawn out, long process. And that's why we don't have this anymore. I think, and, and government's supposed to be drawn long it's like almost like the best decisions are the ones that take that amount of time and into consideration to where, you know, that you have the rub and you have the rub openly and um, notoriously either in a committee or like you said, in these separate conference committees, I think that that would, you would create a better budget. So, I mean, like we are, we are at 10 million people flat for, I don't know, 20, 30 years in Michigan, but our budget is, double. I mean, we're at $82 billion and only five or six years ago, it was in the fifties. And so I know, you know, and I understand that it's part of its Medicaid and that we, you know, it's the Obama plan and a lot of that money's coming from the federal government. However, we still have to oversee it. We still have to organize it. And it's still our tax dollars. It might be coming from the federal government, but it's still tax dollars being spent and it should have better oversight from the top all the way down to the bottom. You know what? It's like, okay, like, so just like a small example in Orion, we had a um, increased millage for our fire department. We went from a full, a part-time to a full-time and BLS to an ALS, you know, a basic to advanced life support. So we went from not being able to do paramedic to buying ambulances. And that was a huge process that took, the 12 years that I was there and it cost money and you went out for a millage and you spent the money and we bought new fire stations and we bought new trucks and we invested in our people. Okay. That was our choice and the voters voted on it. Great. I say all that to say, why would we also have to pay for Westland's fire station and their new fire truck? Because we already paid for ours. Now our tax dollars got to pay for other communities as well, too. And so we keep on looking at the budget of how it affects me individually in my town. But we're state legislators. We have to look at the whole state and how it affects everybody from the top of the UP all the way down to, you know, Monroe, Michigan. And, and if we don't look at it at that lens... We then we're not doing the job of state legislators. We're we might as well just be in local government and just stay there. And what it is, and we're overseeing just our local entities. 
that probably half of that budget is local cutouts, carve outs. But isn't this part of the fact that we have too much money, Representative? I mean, we've got a lot of money. And when we didn't have any money, we didn't have a lot of these cutouts. I mean, we, maybe we'd have like uh, 20, 30, maybe $70 million when you put in the budget for these local projects. But it's only because we've got these enormous budgets now that we're able to do these local projects that we put at what? What was it? $2 billion? Isn't that what you counted, Sam? Yeah, around that. I would say yes and no. I still think that we continue to pick uh, not just projects, not just one-time items, but I think that we still continue to pick winners and losers depending on I don't know who is the biggest lobbyist, who has majority, who has the, you know what I mean? It's not who, who is GM, who is Ford, who is, and, and it's not a holistic look on what's the best for the state. You know, what school district makes the most noise, who's, I mean, it's like the squeaky wheel wins. And I don't even just mean the one-time projects, but I mean like how we, do tax incentives, how we do research and uh, design tax incentives, how we do tax incentives for the DIA and the zoo. And the, I mean, it's like we're picking winners and losers all the time. So I, I just, yeah, I don't want to beat that up anymore because I'm like, I, I, I bore people. Well, I would love to poke your brain at this because you used to work in housing, you know, you were a, you were in real estate. With that being said, when you see all of this uh, housing policy going through, going through the orbit here in Michigan, is there anything you think that policymakers are getting wrong when it comes to promoting housing in Michigan? Same thing. You're picking communities and you're giving money to certain industries to say, okay, somebody has decided that we need more apartments. Well, who's to say that? I, I think if you let the market be free, then people will build based on what the market demands instead of saying the government choosing what we should and shouldn't build and who we should house where. I think that we would be better off. I don't think that if you look at our past history of the government being involved in housing, HUD, government housing projects, uh, they haven't done well. I mean, they just haven't. So I think that we need to free up that market as well, too. And I know there will be a lot of people that would disagree with me, but the more and then the more the government like gave out these handouts for certain things, it drove up inflation and the driving up of the inflation created these costs for these buildings to be just exorbitant. People can't build houses. So you actually took away by being the government being involved in like handing out money. It rose interest at rose the interest rates and it rose inflation, which actually made people walk away from the housing market to build houses. So it's like, your great idea here has unintended consequences over here. And we're seeing the unintended consequences of our housing based on getting involved in other parts of government that we shouldn't have been getting involved in. So I don't think that we should get involved in housing either, but I'm probably the minority. Not only am I the minority, I am the minority in the way that I think as well too. You know, it seems like it, housing is definitely something you're pretty passionate about, but I'm I'm curious as well, you know, between your pretty extensive time in local government and your first term in the state house, what has been the top issue you've heard your constituents really getting fired up about? They want us to get along and they're tired of the games. 
just do what you're supposed to do and do it right and just stop being like these I think <laughs> the government has become a drama queen and it's like we it just should be quiet do our job make sure the water works and the toilets flush and your garbage is picked up and everybody can go on their way that's how I believe government should be and I think people are really tired of the drama I mean I have to say like Michigan State for instance what's going on in Michigan State it's like these are our leaders that are running that school. They have not been looking good in the news. These students are looking towards the leaders to do a good job. And when leaders act how they're acting right now, I think we can say, wow, now we know why these kids are having a hard time. You know, it's like the leaders need to be leaders and we are getting away from that and we're continue to play games and it is hurting our schools and our government. So um, I don't know that I don't even remember what your question is. I always get off track. <laughs> no, that was perfect. Thank you. And the last thing that the, you know, the transparency laws, you know, regarding proposal one that, I mean, did you guys see the irony that those were passed at three in the morning on the last day that we are in session about how to be more transparent? I mean, did you guys watch that one? We were up. I think we were up. We were watching it. We were over in Media Row, weren't we, Danny? Oh, yeah, we were there. Well, I was looking before jumping into this interview with you this morning, I was looking at bills that you have introduced. And I saw things like providing the okay to say program contact information on student ID cards. I saw things like uh, dealing with um, mental health care for those, what is it, provides outpatient treatment for misdemeanor offenders with mental health issues. Is there anything that you've introduced in your first year as a lawmaker that you are surprised, genuinely surprised you didn't see more bipartisan action on? That mental health one is because the judges are asking for it. You know, they're, what they're doing is seeing these kids that are creating crimes and they may have drug addiction or mental health issues and they keep on going through the system and they're not getting outpatient treatment. And so there was the, the whole idea was to give the judges to be able to have the opportunity to say, okay, these people don't need to go to jail. They don't need a misdemeanor. They don't need a fine. They need outpatient treatment. I would have thought we would have been more helpful on fixing the root cause of these problems instead of trying to fix them on the end by throwing money at it. You know what I mean? You know, we're talking, I mean, we should be fixing our schools and not worry, you know, versus, you know, like, thinking about the bail bonds and um, prisons and prison sentences. Let's work on at the onset. Let's work about accountability and good schools and good teachers. And that's what we should be like going back to government. What is our job as government taking care of these issues on the front on front load them so we are not dealing with them on the back end. So I guess that's what I wish I would have saw more of. My last question before we take off is that you see in Oakland County where you're at, a lot of Democrats have poured a lot of money into those races and have seen these growing successes. Do you feel that you are treated differently as a minority legislator in a competitive district in Oakland County? Oh, yeah. It's an interesting r role. 
because yes, I'm treated differently. It's like I'm constantly fighting Republicans because I'm not conservative enough. And I'm constantly fighting Democrats because I'm too conservative. So I'm truly in a 50-50 district and I have to stick to my heart of what I think is right and how to run a good government, which I don't think we're doing. And if I can stick on that mission, then what will be, will be. And I will do the best job that I can while I'm here by doing what I think is doing a better job running the government. And if people buy into what they think I'm doing a good job, good. And if not, then they probably want somebody else. And I'm not that person that wants to play the games. I'm, you play games at home with your kids. You don't play games with other people's money and the government. And I'm very serious about doing a good job. And so if people support me trying to do a good job, great. And if they don't, I'll go do a good job somewhere else. But I do have one other thing, Sam, that I wanted to bring up that I don't know if you guys were watching too, is that you know, we have those two special elections in those two districts. And I think that that was a political game, too, that I was disappointed about, that those two communities will now have to run five elections next year. And that filing the paperwork, we were told on Wednesday that if you want to run, you have until the 27th. I'm like, that doesn't seem like that was good use of government and time either. So that was the newest thing over the weekend that I wanted to bring up. Thank you so much, Rep. Donnie Steele, for joining us on today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Sam and Danny. And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to Saginaw-based lobbyist Jimmy Green, the current CEO of Jimmy Green and Associates, as well as thanks to Executive Director Moreno Taylor II of the Fund My Future Coalition and State Rep Donnie Steele, an Orion Township Republican. I'd also like to give a tremendous thanks to MERS editor Kyle Malin and our house reporter Danielle James. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Basher, Audio and Okamas. Thanks to him for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. Samantha Schreiber.